birthday, which means we have to be right on the line for the second coming of Christ. And we're going to see that pictured here, prophesied in the book of Leviticus. What I love about Leviticus is it's a book of pictures. The Old Testament is full of pictures. God is writing in word pictures everything he's going to do in the New Testament. So I'm going to pray and then we'll get going. Write down your questions. We'll do a little little Q&A. Jesus, thank you tonight once again to get into this amazing word, the word of God, specifically Leviticus. The amazing pictures you've embedded in there for us to see. We know it's providential. Lord, thank you for the opportunity to study the Word of God with the people of God. Would you tonight transform our hearts, give us understanding in our minds. Lord, thank you that we know that we live right at the end of time as we know it, that you are coming very, very soon. And there's coming a promise of a sabbatical rest on the way. In Jesus' name, amen. Welcome back to our study of Leviticus. It's hard to fathom, but we're almost through. But Leviticus 25, I might say, is kind of saving the best for last. You've heard me say all the way through this that the book of Leviticus is foundational to every New Testament doctrine that we hold dear as Christians because God in some way has in word pictures and prophetic foreshadows really cast a light toward what he's going to be doing in the New Testament as God is even now outlining uh, elements of the Old Testament, the Old Covenant. And we've learned that this is the book of the priesthood as God is establishing the priests of the ancient Hebrews in the wilderness as they are on their journey out of Egypt at the Exodus and on their way to the promised land. Aaron, a picture, uh, of course, is the high priest. He is a picture of our high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. His sons, of course, are a picture of you and I, not the high priest, but indeed priests of God, 1 Peter 2.5 and 1 Peter 2.9. Now, when I say the best is for last, Leviticus 25 is a picture of a thousand years of peace and rest that is prophesied to come one day upon the earth. We call it the millennial reign or the millennial kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. Once again, a picture is here that God is going to draw with words of this time on earth that God is planning to establish a kingdom that will be without end, that will last for a thousand years as Jesus reigns physically and literally on the earth from a throne in Jerusalem. Now, Leviticus 25 outlines the Jewish sabbatical year and the year of Jubilee. 
historically speaking, that's what God is doing. It's a good time to just review uh, maybe the applications of Bible study and applications of the Word of God. As you study the Word of God, it always begins with the history. What is happening historically? And ask that question, simply what happened? Well, historically, we know that God is delivering the Levitical law to Moses in the wilderness related to the worship of God among the ancient Hebrews. And he's going to introduce to here the concepts and the practice of the Jewish sabbatical year and the year of Jubilee. But doctrinally, what is God teaching from this history? I've already told you, it's, it's prophetically foreshadowing a thousand years of rest upon the earth, both the sabbatical year as well as the year of Jubilee in some way are a picture of this wonderful Sabbath rest that's coming one day soon, I'm convinced, to the earth. Both of these events you see prophetically foreshadow the millennial kingdom and that thousand years that is yet to come, that thousand-year rest spoken of by John in Revelation chapter 20, a thousand years when Satan will be bound and no longer able to deceive the nations, and Jesus is reigning literally from a throne in Jerusalem. Can you imagine and fathom what that's going to be like someday? And we, you and me, Revelation 1 and verse 6, Revelation 5 and verse 10, it says that we will be priests and kings. In fact, we are priests and kings, and we will reign on the earth. We will reign with him as a part of his administration. Let's begin today by our study of the Jewish sabbatical year, and we'll pick it up right here in Leviticus 25 and verse 1. It says this, And the Lord spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land which I give you, then the land shall keep a Sabbath to the Lord. Six years you shall sow your field, and six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather its fruit. But in the seventh year there shall be a Sabbath of solemn rest for the land, a Sabbath to the Lord. You shall neither sow your field nor prune your vineyard. And so the Jews here are taught and they are told to work the land for six years and then rest it in the seventh year. God is teaching them a couple things. First of all, in that seventh year, you're going to totally trust Him. Remember, this was an age of subsistence living. Like you could not go down to the grocery store and buy a week's worth of groceries. You either grew it, caught it, or killed it, or you just didn't eat. So you can begin to imagine that agriculture, the crops and the flocks, were absolutely essential in the ancient world to a family's health and livelihood. You know, the garden I like to keep in the backyard does good some years and maybe not as good other years. And, you know, it's frustrating when I don't have a good summer and the tomatoes uh, maybe uh, get a disease and, man, they're just not quite the same. But here's the deal. Uh, I'm going to survive either way, whether my garden does good or not. But in these days... You, you didn't survive if your crops didn't do well. You didn't survive if the flocks did not do well. And so you can see God is teaching them just practically and historically really, really what it's going to take to trust uh, him because they were not going to plant anything in that seventh year. The land was going to rest. Now look at verse 5. It says this, uh, What grows of its own accord of your harvest you shall not reap. Neither gather the grapes of your unintended vine, uh, untended vine, for it is a year of rest for the land. Now he's saying, look, in that seventh year, you're going to have volunteer crops. That's what we call it, volunteers, things you didn't plant, but naturally comes up on its own. And uh, he was saying, you're not even going to reap the harvest that seventh year 
of that volunteer crop. Uh, you know, years ago, I planted, I planted, I didn't plant it, I uh, had it built, a house uh, where I used to live. And uh, we built this house in what was once a soybean field. And uh, in that yard that next year around the house where I had planted grass, soybean plants started to emerge. Uh, and that was the volunteer soybeans that started to come up through the grass in my yard of that first year because that was the harvest from that previous year. Some of those beans had fallen into the ground from the harvest of the previous year. And then naturally, the volunteer plant emerged. And, and in essence, that's what God is saying. Do not touch even those volunteers from the next year. You're to completely let the land rest. Uh, you're to completely uh, to leave that field uh, untouched to itself. Now look at what it says in verse 6, and here's the reason why. It says, "In the Sabbath produce of the land shall be food for you, for you, your male and female servants, your hired man, and the stranger who dwells with you, for your livestock and the beasts that are in your land. All its produce shall be for food. And so he says here, listen, God is saying every seven years, uh, you're going to let the land rest, even though your land may bring forth that harvest naturally. You're not to touch it for yourself. You're going to leave it for those who don't have land. You're going to leave it for those uh, to come and harvest, uh, in some cases, the poor or the foreigner among you. That landowner was not to keep it for himself. Again, he's trying to teach them totally to trust him, and they were not to touch it. Now, we don't have time to really maybe turn here, but I'll, I just want you to jot down Deuteronomy chapter 13 because we get more information during 13 about this Sabbath year. What God is doing gives us more detail in addition to neither sowing or harvesting their crops in that seventh year. All debts were also to be released. Now, they were not to be canceled. Uh, they were not to be forgiven, but they were to be suspended. So if you had a loan or uh, you um, you had a debt, it was temporarily suspended for one year. And the reason why I think is obvious. It was this an age where agriculture drove the economy. If you didn't have crops, you had no way of making money. So consequently, God is saying, listen, we're going to suspend all the debt payments uh, for one year because nobody's going to have an income. And so uh, we learned during 13 that uh, nobody had to pay back or pay on a loan during that sabbatical year as well. What is God teaching through all of this? Remember, this is history, but God is always teaching something more than history. He's teaching something that he wants us to understand doctrinally speaking. He's establishing a pattern of working six, resting on the seventh, which outlines his plan for bringing to climax his plan of the ages. I'm talking about a millennial kingdom. Remember, when God put Adam in a garden, he said these words, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. God's plan for Adam was to establish a kingdom that would be without end. God, you see, had made Adam in his image and his likeness, and he was to reproduce that image and likeness in his offspring, thereby establishing a kingdom upon the earth that would be without end. Of course, that commission was canceled, when Adam sinned, but remember Jesus is the last Adam, 1 Corinthians 15, 45, and everything that God would have done through the first Adam, he is now fulfilling in the last Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, through his bride, his Eve, that's you and me, the church. 
We've been given a commission to establish a kingdom. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Go you therefore, make disciples of all nations. Uh, the very same commission is about the very same kingdom. Be fruitful, that's evangelism. To multiply, that's discipleship. To fill the earth, that's to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, Acts 1 and verse 8. You see, God's plan is still intact. And what sin has delayed, it has not denied. God's going to have that kingdom. And you can see this pattern embedded right here in Scripture. On a practical level, he's teaching the Hebrews now to totally trust him. Uh, prophetically and doctrinally, this year of Sabbath rest is a picture of the thousand years of rest that's coming to the earth. I'm going to show you in just a moment this amazing pattern that's embedded in Scripture pointing to the thousand years of rest. But just practically, uh, God is teaching these Hebrews who are really in their faith in a place of infancy. Uh, they're in a place of adolescence spiritually. They're just starting to toddle, really just starting to walk with God. He's teaching them early on what it's going to take to walk with Him, to totally trust Him. Uh, he's teaching us also stewardship. Think about this. We're not owners of anything. That makes us stewards of everything. A steward is not an owner. And he's teaching them, listen, when you come into the land, remember, that land is not yours. I'm going to give every family an allotment. I'm going to give every tribe an inheritance. I'm going to divide it according to your tribes, according to your families. But remember, the land will always be mine. You're not owners. You're stewards. And so I want you to see that they, they are being taught now stewardship of the land. Uh, from a just historical and agricultural perspective, this was the age, of course, before um, commercial fertilizers, synthetic fertilizers. This was truly an organic age, if you know what I'm saying. And so everybody knows if you're in farming, you can wear out the land very easily if you don't let it rest, especially in an age where there's no way to fertilize the land uh, in a really efficient kind of way. So just practically, it was good stewardship of the land God was giving them that was fertile. It was beautiful, a land that flowed with milk and honey. He's saying, I want you to be stewards of this land and don't wear it out by over farming it. And so he is uh, just practically teaching them the stewardship of the land. He's practically teaching them how to trust him in that seventh year when they could not plant the land. And then doctrinally, he's teaching us about his plan for the ages to establish a kingdom that will be without end. Never forget that this plan for a kingdom is, uh, is very focused on the Jews, very focused on the land of Israel, that the Jews are God's people by covenant, and they will always be God's people by covenant. Uh, a lot of people think, well, God is done with the Jews, and there's a lot of good and godly people, even in the church, that really really believe uh, the theology known as replacement theology, that the church has replaced Israel and that the Abrahamic covenant has been broken because the Jews crucified their Messiah. But friends, that just can't be true. Uh, remember Genesis chapter 17, God makes a covenant with Abraham and calls it an everlasting covenant. And that covenant was centered around the land. And that, I think, is not coincidental at all that in the last three chapters of Leviticus, Leviticus 25, 26, and 27, you see this phrase, the land, over 30 times. Over 30 times you see this phrase, the land. 
Because in Genesis 15, in Genesis chapter 12, the covenant God makes with Abraham and his seed, the Jews, was related to the land. That's why it's called the promised land. God promised Abraham and his descendants a piece of real estate that is still there in the Middle East. We learn in Genesis chapter 15, it stretches from the Mediterranean on the west, clear to the Euphrates on the east, from Lebanon on the north, clear to the Nile on the south. And there's the whole promised land as God intended them. Never at any time in Israel's history have they inhabited all the land. But we know one day they will in the millennial kingdom. God will make good on all those promises that he made to Abraham. And we know it's an everlasting promise. That promise is still intact today. That covenant is binding. It's unbreakable because the nature of that covenant hinges on God's faithfulness, not the Jews' faithfulness. Uh, just like our salvation, it hinges not on our faithfulness, but rather God's faithfulness. He said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. It's an everlasting covenant. Everlasting is just that, everlasting, kind of like God promised us eternal life. If we can lose our salvation, that would seem contrary to the concept that he's given us everlasting life. How can something everlasting be lost? See, it's a covenant that's binding. And that's the nature of the covenant God made with Abraham. It's binding and everlasting covenant is still intact today. And God is one day going to make good on that promise. The Jews will again be in that land and they will inhabit all the land of which they've never historically inhabited even to this day. And so we can see that here uh, being established in Leviticus 25 is God is establishing this Sabbath year of rest. They were to work the land for six years, rest it then, in the seventh year. And then he goes on in this chapter, he's going to talk about the year of Jubilee. Yet another picture prophetically of this thousand year kingdom coming, this millennial kingdom where Jesus and rule and reign, there'll be a thousand years of rest on planet earth. Let's pick it up now in verse eight. Look at what it says. He says this, and you shall count seven Sabbaths of years for yourself, seven times seven years or 49 years. And the time of the seven Sabbaths of year shall be to you 49 years. Then you shall cause the trumpet of the Jubilee to sound on the tenth day of the seventh month. On the day of atonement, you shall make the trumpet to sound throughout all your land. And you shall consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout all the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a Jubilee for you, and each of you shall return to his possession, and each of you shall return to his family. That fiftieth year you shall be a jubilee to you. In it you shall neither sow nor reap what grows of its own accord, nor gather the grapes of your untended vine. For it is the jubilee. It shall be holy to you. You shall eat its produce from the field. And so he introduces this year of jubilee. They were to count seven Sabbaths of years, or seven times seven or 49 sabbatical years. And then in that 50th year, it was going to be a year of Jubilee. A remarkable picture is the year of Jubilee. So the Jews were to count sabbatical years, seven times seven, 49 years. And that 50th year, on the Day of Atonement, the trumpet blast would sound, and that would begin the year of Jubilee. Absolutely amazing. Now remember, they've just finished on a sabbatical year. The land's rested. They haven't planted that land. 
in that year. Now watch this. It's the year of Jubilee, which means they're going to rest the land again. They're not going to plant the land again. If they had to trust God the first time, they've got to really trust him now the second time, the second year. It's the year of Jubilee. Uh, it's the only time this word in the Hebrew appears, and the English translators chose the best word we have in the English language uh, to translate this word, and the only time it's found in the Old Testament, translated now as Jubilee. So what was this year to be about? What do you think of when you think of the word Jubilee? I don't know about you, but I think of party, festival, festivity. Uh, we're talking about celebration. It was to be a year of celebration. How's it going to be a year of celebration if they haven't planted the land again in the second year? It's going to be kind of hard uh, to have a, a Thanksgiving festival when they haven't planted the land. But see, what is God doing here? Well, first, practically, he's teaching them again to trust him implicitly, to trust him completely. Uh, but there's so much more going on than simply a, a, a test of faith, and they're going to take the trust test. Listen, the year of Jubilee is the last in a series of seven sevens that God uses in Scripture to outline his plan for the ages. Now, when I say the Leviticus 25 is really God prophetically outlining his plan for the ages, this is what I'm talking about. The year of Jubilee is the last of what we call God's seven sevens where he is outlining his plan for the ages, specifically climaxing with this thousand-year millennial kingdom. It goes something like this. It begins in Genesis chapter 1 with the creation week. Here's the pattern. Remember, God is a God of patterns. You want to see where he's going, just look at where he's been. You can't understand what God's going to do unless you understand what God has done. So he purposely embeds these patterns in Scripture for you to follow. So here's the pattern. You have God working for six days, then resting on the seventh. Now remember, God didn't need to rest because he was so worn out after all he did on the first six days. God doesn't need to sleep. He didn't need to take a nap, all right? He was clearly establishing a pattern here. This word Sabbath. It says he rested on the Sabbath. What is Sabbath? It simply means rest. Uh, think of the word sabbatical. Sometimes pastors take a sabbatical. Don't worry, I'm not going to, all right? Other people take a sabbatical. That, that sabbatical comes from this word Sabbath. It simply means rest. And so he rests. He takes a Sabbath at the end of working six days. And so there's a pattern emerging. He does it specifically because he's setting up a pattern, not because he was worn out and had to go lay down. So he works six, rest on the seventh. Then he tells the Jews, I want you to work for six days, rest on the seventh. Then he tells them, I want you to work for six months and then rest in the seventh month. And that's where the last three feasts were uh, celebrated in that seventh month. So God's work for six, rested in the seventh. The Jews are working for six days, resting in the seventh. Then they work for six months, they rested in the seventh. Then he tells them, I want you to work the land for six uh, years. I want you to rest it in the seventh. And then he tells them, I want you to go seven times seven or seven times sabbatical years. In the 49th year, that 50th year, it's going to be a year of Jubilee. And then you have... This pattern established of working six, resting in the seventh. It's absolutely amazing, isn't it? I mean, God is so meticulous. He's so concise. 
I work six, rest it on the seventh. I want you to work six, rest on the seventh. I want you to work for six uh, weeks, rest in that seventh week. I want you to work for six months, rest in the seventh month. I want you to work the land for six years, rest it in the seventh year. I want you to do that seven times seven on the 50th year. going to have a year of jubilee. You're going to have a time of rest. What is God doing? It's amazing. So, there have been mathematicians over the years, uh, the most famous of which was a man by the name of Bishop Usher, who took the genealogies in the book of Genesis and using those genealogies, mathematically dated Adam's creation to approximately 4004 BC. Now, I'm not suggesting that's the age of the earth, uh, because I don't believe Adam was created at the same time as the earth. Uh, it's a little different than a lot of uh, scholars and other pastors and Christians believe, and I can tell you why another time. But mankind as we know it has been on the earth approximately, and it's approximate, 6,000 years. 4,004 BC, we're now in the 21st century, we're some 2,000 years AD, uh, for about 6,000 years. Now remember what Peter says, Second Peter 3 and verse 8. A thousand years is as a day, and a day is as a thousand years. And so if mankind has been on the earth working for 6,000 years, then we have been here for six days. Now there's a pattern of working six, then resting on the seventh. A thousand years as a day, a day is as a thousand years. We've been here on the earth, Adam's race, for 6,000 years or six days. We are right on the threshold of the seventh day. There's going to be a 1,000 years of rest coming, a year of jubilee, or a 1,000 years of rest. A sabbatical rest is on the way. And friends, this pattern tells us we are right on the threshold of that seventh day. We're somewhere near the end of the sixth. We are right on the line for the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ to establish that millennial kingdom that will be for a thousand years. And when time ends, eternity begins. It'll be a kingdom, you see, that will be without sin. And even when that thousand years is over, that kingdom will be without end. You see, there's a reason why we as Christians, unlike any other generation, can say emphatically that we live on the threshold of time as we know it that Jesus really, really is on the way, that the second coming is nearer than it's ever been. The Jews are back in the land. Not only are they back in the land, but according to Luke 21, 24, the moment in 1967, they rolled back in Jerusalem and took control of Jerusalem. That was a super sign, according to what Jesus said. He said, Jerusalem, we trampled underfoot by Gentiles. Will the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled? And with the Jews not only back in the land after 2,000 years, but back in Jerusalem, it's a super sign that there's nothing left prophetically speaking that must be fulfilled before Jesus comes to rapture his bride. And uh, a seven-year tribulation will then ensue at the conclusion of which Jesus Christ will return to establish that kingdom that will bring peace to the earth. Now, there was a prophet by the name of Isaiah who saw this very thing, this year of Jubilee. Let's see how he interprets it. Isaiah chapter 27, verse 13, he says this, And it shall come to pass on that day, 
that the great trumpet shall be blown, and they shall come which were ready to perish in the land of Assyria, and the outcasts in land of Egypt, and shall worship the Lord in the holy mountain of Jerusalem. That jubilee, that celebration is what's in view when Isaiah writes this messianic prophecy. There is coming a day that the Jews will be back in the land and they will come to embrace their Messiah, whom 2,000 years they crucified. They were scattered abroad among the nations, Assyria and Egypt and various other places throughout the earth. But as God promised, he's already gathered them back. He's brought them back into the land. The Apostle Paul tells us in Romans chapter 10 that he will graft them back into the olive tree, speaking of God's family spiritually. And you better believe all that God planned for me and you and the Jews too will be fulfilled at this time in history that is still yet, futuristically speaking, somewhere ahead of us, but it can't be far away. Look at what it says in verse 9. Then you shall cause the trumpet of the jubilee to sound on the tenth day of the seventh month, on the day of atonement. You shall make the trumpet to sound throughout all your land. Now, in an earlier lesson, we studied the seven feasts of Israel, one of which was the day of atonement. Remember what we said, that word atonement means at one minute. It's the time in which God will once again be one with men and tabernacle. Uh, and and prepare to establish that presence among men again. It's going to happen on the day of trumpets. This is why I look in Scripture. For example, at the at the Second uh, Thessalonians chapter two tells us that there's coming a day. Uh, actually, I said chapter two. It's Second Thessalonians chapter four. It says the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trump of God. And the dead in Christ shall rise first, and we which are alive remain shall be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall be forevermore with the Lord. So you have the day of the Lord, which the Old Testament prophets spoke of often. That's the term they use, the phrase they use, the day of the Lord. It's not just one single day, but rather a series of days that begins with the rapture of the church and ends with the second coming of Christ. All those days in between, the seven years tribulation is the day of the Lord. I want you to notice how it's associated with the trumpet blast. Uh, Jesus fulfilled perfectly, literally, to the day, the first four feasts of Israel. This is why he was crucified on Passover, because he is our Passover lamb. And as the Jews were celebrating Passover and thousands and thousands of lambs and their life was being taken, the blood was being shed in the temple and the blood was flowing out of the temple down into the Kidron Valley and up across the valley on this hill called Golgotha hung the Lamb of God, our Passover Lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's not coincidental. That is not accidental. That is providential. And as Jesus fulfilled the first four feasts, literally to the day, on the day, I'm convinced personally, he will fulfill the last three feasts on the day. So what day is Jesus coming? He's coming on the day of atonement with that trumpet blast. All right, now listen, nobody knows for sure the Jewish calendar. It's been lost to time. But if we did, I'm convinced personally, we would know the day and the hour. Now, Jesus said, no man knows the day or the hour. Don't try to figure it out because you will not be able to. 
I'm just convinced that when we get to heaven, we're going to go, oh, of course, it was there all along. Uh, he's coming on the Day of Atonement with a trumpet blast, and all that's pictured right here in some kind of way, prophetically speaking, on the Day of Atonement. Look at verse 10. And you shall consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout all the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you, and each of you shall return his possession. Each of you shall return to his family. So it begins on the Day of Atonement with that trumpet blast. By the way, that's why there's a trumpet blast over and over again in the book of Revelation because that's the book of completion. And that trumpet's going to sound. The Lord is going to descend. And he's going to establish that kingdom that will be without end. It will be a thousand years, the seventh day, the year of Jubilee. And it's all pictured right here in verse 10. I want you to see how Jewish prophet Isaiah interpreted verse 10. In verse 10, he tells us, as we proclaim liberty throughout all the land to all its inhabitants, for it's a year of jubilee for you, and each of you shall return his possession, and each of you shall return to his family. So what happens? Somebody who uh, falls on hard times in poverty, let's say they have to sell the rice to the land to another family. The land goes back then to its original owner in the year of jubilee. Uh, the debts are forgiven. The land that was lost goes back to the original family. Those that had to sell themselves into servitude because of bankruptcy. Remember, these are the days before there was such a thing as a state welfare system. Uh, there was no such thing as health care. There was no such thing as uh, you know, a food pantry down the road somewhere. This was the age where if you fell on hard times, you by law could sell yourself into servitude to pay off your debts. It was an indentured servant. And what he's saying is, uh, if that's you, you are set free on the year of Jubilee. And so uh, it's an amazing picture what Jesus did for us at Calvary. Our debts were counseled. We were set free. Uh, the land, the territory that we lost spiritually is returned. Everything that God wanted to do through Adam that Satan stole, who now has dominion over the earth, it all goes back to the sons of Adam, which is why we now will rule and reign where currently it's Satan and his angels that rule and reign. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 4. He's the God of this age. 1 John 5, 19. The entire world lies under the power of the wicked one. That was not God's original intent. The world was to be reigned and ruled by the sons of Adam under God's dominion. But because of sin, Adam transferred that dominion back to Satan and with the second coming of Christ, the year of Jubilee begins. All that stolen land goes back to the sons of Adam. And that's why we will rule and reign on the earth with him. The pictures are amazing. Now, I want you to see in Isaiah 61, turn there with me, Isaiah 61 and verse 1, what Isaiah says about this year of Jubilee. Specifically, look at what he says, Isaiah 61 verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. It's a messianic prophecy, speaking of the Messiah when he would come, written some 700 years B.C. It says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, the Messiah, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, 
to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God. Look at verse 2, that first phrase, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Isaiah has in view there the year of Jubilee. Now, here's what is absolutely amazing. You talk about rightly dividing the word of truth, 2 Timothy 2 and verse 15, study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that need not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. In other words, wrongly dividing God's word leads to wrong doctrine, wrong belief system. Rightly dividing the word of truth, putting it in its proper context, leads to right doctrine and correct belief system. Well, watch Jesus, all right? Luke chapter 4. He goes into the synagogue in Nazareth uh, where, he was, where he was raised. And he asks for the scroll, the Isaiah scroll. He sits down, according to Luke chapter 4, on the seat of Moses, as would have been custom. He opens up the Isaiah scroll. He reads this very passage we just read, Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. And he says these words at the end. This is why they wanted to kill him for it. They thought it was blasphemous. He says these words at the end of reading this messianic prophecy. He says, this day I say to you, this prophecy has been fulfilled within your eyes and within your ears, meaning I am the one that this was written of before. He was claiming to be the Messiah. He was claiming to be the fulfillment of this prophecy in Isaiah 61. But watch this. If you go to Luke chapter 4, he stops reading with this phrase in verse 2, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. He does not continue reading the second phrase of verse 2, and the day of the vengeance of our God. You know why? Because Jesus knew. The day of vengeance has not yet come. What he was doing was offering the kingdom to the Jews. He was saying, I am the fulfillment of this prophecy. I am the fulfillment of this year of jubilee. I am here to cancel all the debt spiritually. I am here to establish this kingdom. I am the king, the promised one, the anointed one. But he stopped reading because he knew it's not yet the day of the Lord. In other words, they were expecting a Messiah that would come with a warlike countenance to drive back those that had held them subservient, the Romans specifically, and establish a physical kingdom through a military campaign. But that's not what he came to do. No, the first time he knew he was coming, not for the crown, but for the cross. He came here. He says, I am the Messiah. I am the one. And I'm here to offer you the year of Jubilee, the acceptable year of the Lord. I'm going to the cross. But he knew, prophetically speaking, they would reject the offer of the kingdom because they would crucify the king. And so there's a 2,000-year parenthesis in verse 2. Proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. They rejected that offer. 2,000 years later, we're on the threshold and the day of vengeance of our God. What's it say in Revelation chapter 19 when Jesus returns? He says he's coming back to tread out the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. He's coming back with vengeance to establish that kingdom. He's coming back as a warrior king, not a suffering servant, not for a cross, but rather for a crown. Absolutely remarkable that we see in Scripture, isn't it? Now, let's pick it up back in Leviticus chapter 25. 
And let's pick it up now. I think, uh, let's go to verse 13. Leviticus chapter 25 and verse 13. In this year of Jubilee, each of you shall return to his possession. And if you sell anything to your neighbor or buy from your neighbor's hand, you shall not oppress one another. According to the number of years after the Jubilee, you shall buy from your neighbor. And according to the number of years of crops, uh, he shall sell to you. According to the multitude of years, you shall increase its price. And according to the fewer number of years, you shall diminish its price. For he sells to you according to the number of the years of the crops. Therefore, you shall not oppress one another, but you shall fear your God, for I am the Lord your God. And so if a Jew got into financial trouble, he could not sell his land because the land belonged to the Lord. Uh, we know that from, look at verse 23, The land shall not be sold permanently, for the land is mine. For you are strangers and sojourners with me. So what happens if a man got in trouble financially, he couldn't sell the land because it belonged to God, didn't belong to him, but he could sell the rights to the land. In other words, he could sell the crops of the land. He could sell to somebody the right to work the land. And so all God is doing here now is saying, uh, you're going to price adjust the land based on how far out the year of Jubilee is. So you're going to prorate uh, the price of the land, meaning the farther away from the year of Jubilee, the more value that land had. And the closer it got to the year of Jubilee, the less value that land had. Because uh, when the year of Jubilee hit, that land was going back to that original man, back to that original family line. And so he's saying, you're not going to press each other. Even if you get in trouble financially, you're not going to leverage that against your Jewish brother. Uh, you're going to deal fairly with them. God says you can't use it against them uh, because uh, the land is his, first and foremost. And so consequently, uh, he was giving them specific instruction on uh, how to deal with it. Um, look at what it says now in verse 18. He says this, So you shall observe my statutes and keep my judgments and perform them, and you will dwell in the land in safety. Then the land will yield its fruit, and you will eat your fill and dwell there in safety. And if you say, What shall we eat in the seventh year, since we shall not sow nor gather in our produce? Then I will command my blessing on you in the sixth year, and it will bring forth produce enough for three years. And you shall sow in the eighth year and eat old produce until the ninth year. Until its produce comes in, you shall eat of the old harvest. And so in the year of Jubilee, they wouldn't plant their land for three years. And he knows ahead of time what they're going to say. How are we going to eat? How are we going to live? We can't plant for three years. He says, look, I'm going to make sure in the sixth year that your land does so well that it produces enough to eat on for three years because they could not plant in that seventh year, that Sabbath year of rest. Then came the year of Jubilee. They couldn't plant then either. Then they'd have to wait a whole other year to plant their land when it was planting season again. So it'd be a full three years before they were going to get a harvest. And God is saying ahead of time, if you'll trust me in this, if you will believe me in this, I will bless your land in such a way that it's going to produce enough to live on for three years. He's once again illustrating that they can trust him. Now look at what it says in verse 18. So you shall observe my statutes and keep my judgments and perform them, and you will dwell in the land safely. Now, uh, in safety. Now, now I want you to remember something. 
You go to the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah tells us why Israel would go into Babylonian captivity for 70 years. The reason why, Jeremiah tells us, is because they had not kept God's statutes out of Leviticus 25 for 490 years. They had not kept that statute, that commandment of that Sabbath year of rest upon the land. 490 years, they hadn't kept the statue. That means 70 Sabbath years were owed to by God. Guess how long the Jews went into captivity in Babylon? That's right, exactly 70 years. You see, they owed God 70 Sabbath years. Guess what God said? Because you would not rest the land for 490 years, and you would not rest the land those 70 years, those Sabbath years of those 490 years, I'm going to remove you from the land for 70 years. So that land's going to rest. I'm going to have my Sabbath years. You see, God, one way or other, always gets what belongs to Him. That's the law of reaping and sowing. It's the universal truth, and we can see it illustrated right here. Now look at verse 23. The land shall not be sold permanently, for the land is mine, for you are strangers and sojourners with me. And in all the land of your possession you shall grant redemption of the land. If one of your brethren becomes poor, has sold some of his possession, and if his redeeming relatives come to redeem it, then he shall redeem what his brother sold. Or if the man has no one to redeem it, but he himself becomes able to redeem it, then let him count the years since its sale and restore the remainder to the man to whom he sold it, and he may return to his possession. But if he's not able to have it restored to himself, then what was sold shall remain in the hand of him who bought it until the year of Jubilee. And in the Jubilee it shall be released, and he shall return to his possession. And so God first reminds him by saying, listen, the land is mine, it's not yours. Uh, you can't sell it permanently, but you can sell the rights to it. And if you have to sell the rights to it, there's certain ways you can redeem it. Uh, a next of kin could redeem it from the one that was sold. Or, for example, if uh, a man suddenly turned around his financial earnings, his financial state, he could redeem it himself. But if a next of kin or a relative could not buy it back for him, or if he could not buy it back for himself, then he's saying you're going to have to wait till the year of Jubilee. In the year of Jubilee, it will come back to you, back to that original family. So, What's a practical application of all this? Well, I want you to see, first of all, this passage teaches the declining value of material things as it gets closer and closer to the year of Jubilee. Uh, he was saying, look, you want to redeem that land that you've lost? Uh, the farther out from the year of Jubilee, the more it's going to cost you to get it back. The closer you are to the year of Jubilee, the less it's going to cost you to get it back. Why? Because somebody would not buy a piece of real estate for a large sum of money if they knew in three years they were going to lose it. Now, on the other hand, if it's 45 years from the next year of Jubilee, and they know they're not going to live another 45 years, I mean, you know, they're going to live another 20 or 30, at that point, that land has more value to them. Here's the point. Material things, the land specifically lost value as it got closer to the year of Jubilee. Now, what's the year of Jubilee picture for us? The second coming of Christ. 
Uh, what's the practical takeaway for you and I? Listen, the closer we get to the second coming, it should radically change the value we put on material things. Do you realize, think about this, we're all one heartbeat away from seeing Jesus. We're all one breath away from seeing Jesus. I don't care how young or how old you are. Time is fleeting. Life is but a vapor. And that's why Jesus said, Do not lay up treasure on earth, but lay up your treasure in heaven, where neither moth and rust corrupts, where thieves do not break through and steal, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. These material things, they have so much value today that we give so much money for, so much of our energy for. Listen, they have zero eternal value, zero eternal worth. And if we understand what God is teaching here, we ought to have increasingly uh, an eternal view of life, a long view of life, and not just the temporal view and the short view, because most people only see the now. They can only see what is, and it's so fleeting, and it's not infinite. It's so finite. Everything in this world is one day going to rust, decay. It's going to die. It's going to fade away. Anything you can hold in your hands, you will one day lose. And so I want to ask you, where is your treasure? Because this is ultimately the, the takeaway. The closer we get to the year of Jubilee, things have a diminishing value. And that's how we ought to live. I'm not saying it's not okay to have nice things. I'm not saying it's a sin to have nice things, to spend money on nice things, go on a nice vacation. Uh, but, but I'm just trying to say keep it in its proper perspective because I'm, I'm telling you, one day those sayings will not matter. They just won't last. They, they, they will not last forever. Here's the reality. In the end, all that will matter are those things we invested our lives in that are eternal. So how are you investing your life? How are you investing your energy, your money, your opportunities, your abilities to affect eternity? Now, we're out of time. The rest of this chapter... Uh, deals just with practically what we might just see historically speaking. Remember, these are the days before one could file bankruptcy. Uh, these were the days before there were uh, government, social, health care, uh, food stamps, and other systems. So deals with basically serving yourself into serv- uh, selling yourself into servitude, how to treat Uh, somebody who was a slave. And remember, every time you see that word slave in the Old Testament, it does not mean forced servitude. Sometimes uh, the book of Leviticus specifically in the Old Testament gets a really bad rap because it's pro-slavery. And I just want to remind you of something. Historically and culturally, slavery was a part of the ancient world, but it wasn't all forced slavery. God never endorsed that kind of slavery that we're familiar with in Western civilization. So if you read the rest of this chapter, it's talking about how Jews are to treat their slaves. Think of indentured servants. Sometimes it looks like, well, God's telling them to treat people like property. Now listen carefully. Think of it. If you sold yourself because you were bankrupt and broke and had no way of taking care of your family, and you sold yourself into servitude, indentured servanthood, in essence is what it was, in the same way Uh, We might say today that a professional athlete is the property of an NFL franchise or, you know, that's the property of 
the New York Yankees. In the same way uh, a professional athlete can be sold to another team or traded to another team, uh, don't think of you know, this, this idea of God endorsing slavery as if you know, the trade of men is like the trade of cattle, as if it's, they're just some chattel. This is the, the reality, the historically, what's going on here. The same way, uh, if I were a professional athlete and I never got the call, don't worry, I always thought that I might play in the NFL, but I didn't. But you, in essence, work for somebody. You're working for them. Uh, and uh, you give up rights to work for that team or work for that team when you have a contract to work for this team. But this team, who has rights over you, can trade you to this team. That's kind of what God is doing here. He's outlining how to treat those indentured servants or those slaves if you end up buying somebody into your service. So don't have time to cover any more in detail than that, but just wanted to give you kind of a big picture of the rest of this chapter because that's one of the most hotly debated issues in the Old Testament by modern men and women. Guys, I love you a whole bunch. I'll see you next time. All right, Leviticus 25. As you can see, there is a lot of information to cover. We did the best we could in 51 minutes. <laughs> Questions? Comments? Thoughts? I mean, there's a lot coming at you. I know there is. There's a lot to process. It's kind of, that's why I want to have a discussion, a little q and A. I have a couple, couple of things. Yeah. Um, I always thought that after seven years, the debts were totally canceled. And you're talking about suspending the, the debts. So maybe I so have we're that talking, backwards. Uh, so don't be confused here. There's two different things going on here. He talks about the end of the chapter, slavery. And often, I've, as I said, it's completely misunderstood. This is where a lot of modern Christians go, well, the Old Testament's pro-slavery. And this is where the God of the Bible gets a really bad rap by modern society. He's dealing here not with forced servitude. He's dealing here with one who's bankrupt, has no way of feeding their family. They could sell themselves into what would be known in the, in the New Testament. Five times Paul called himself a doulos. The Greek word is a doulos. It's translated as bond servant or bond slave. Now what's interesting is the correct translation in the New Testament is bond slave. Guess why the King James translators translates it as bond servant? I'll tell you why. Not because bond servant's a better translation than bond slave, but because slavery, even in the 16th century and 17th century, was such a hotly debated social issue. It's like they said, we don't want to touch that, so let's kind of you know, tone down the translation a little bit and think a bond servant. That sounds a little better. But the issue is a bond slave. A bond slave is one who willfully, of their own free will, sold themselves into the servitude of another. And a bond slave could sell themselves for up to seven years. So Margie, this is what you're thinking of. At the end of seven years, a bond slave was set free uh, by the one that they served. And not only were they set free, but God mandated the one that they served send them away with provisions so they didn't have to go immediately back into poverty uh, and have to go right back into servitude. Now, at the end of those seven years, occasionally, one would say, but I don't want to go free. I love my, sir, my master. And that's why Paul would call himself a doulos, a bond slave. A bond slave that chose to stay with his master willfully 
would go to the doorpost of the home and they would take an awl and they would take a nail and they would drive it through his ear, piercing his ear, permanently marking him as a bond slave. It's somebody who chose to stay, even when they were free to walk away. And Paul described us as Christians, as bond slaves of Jesus Christ. Jesus isn't making us subservient to him. He didn't have a whip in heaven, a two-by-four, waiting to whack us on the head if we get out of line. What's he want? He wants our willful submission to him out of love for our master. And that's what's described in the New Testament that you see here in some way described in Leviticus 25. So at the end of seven years, they had a choice. They could stay and permanently serve that family. Or they were free to walk away at the end of seven years with all of their debts having been paid. They've, in essence, worked off uh, their debts, all right? Now, what we're dealing with here is something different, though, than bond slaves that were set free at the end of seven years. In the sabbatical year, if uh, you had a mortgage or you had a loan, that loan was suspended for one year. It, It wasn't completely erased, Because at the end of that sabbatical year, everything goes back to normal. Everybody plants their fields again. And that's when those payments would be renewed. But the idea is that they'd be suspended for one year in that seventh year. Because in these days, a man that didn't have crops had no income. So God said, we're going to suspend all the loans for one year during the sabbatical year. Uh, but, But that's something different than... Uh, what pertained to a bond slave that served for seven years and then they were free to walk away. Does that make sense? For a moment? (laughs) See, we're just dealing with two different things. You're dealing with the sabbatical year where the fields weren't planted. And then you're dealing with, uh, in the ancient days, just the practical reality of poverty. How does society deal with poverty? When you have no modern welfare system, you have no modern health care system, government wasn't going to do anything. And so God set up a system for the poor. And one of the things they could do is sell themselves into the servitude for up to seven years to work off their debts. At the end of those seven years, they could walk away. They were free to go. Debts were paid. This is one thing, and then you have the sabbatical year, a completely different thing, where the debts are temporarily suspended. And then once a man starts getting an income again, he has the harvest of his crops. Then he begins making payments again the next year. Okay. Yes, ma'am. Okay, Margie, go ahead. Why you got the mic? Is this on? Okay. Um, 1967, when they they were allowed to go back in Jerusalem, and then 50 years later, 2017, Jerusalem declared the capital. So, is that jubilee? Yeah. So this is one of those things where, you know, a lot of people make absolute statements about what God is doing, based on things that all we can go is say, wow, like this is definitely providential, it can't be coincidental, not sure what more it means, but I don't think it's coincidental at all that in 1967 the Jews rolled back into Jerusalem, what Jesus called a super sign that would be trampled underfoot by Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled The Jews are back in Jerusalem, which means the times of the Gentiles are coming to an end, and there's nothing left biblically or prophetically that has to happen before Jesus comes to rapture his bride, 
And then 50 years later, that happens to be the year of Jubilee on the Jewish calendar, their modern calendar, Jerusalem becomes the capital of Israel, at least recognized by one UN nation. Not all of them, but at least one of them. So is that coincidental? I think not. It's providential. I just think the odds are too high that it could just be accidental. But again, I don't think we can say anything more than, wow, God, you're up to something. I'm not sure what. Uh, what I do know for sure is uh, it's one more reason to think we are right on the threshold of the seventh day. We're at the end of the sixth day. 6,000 years man has worked. The world has been at war. There is coming a seventh day, a sabbatical age where there will be no more work, no war, peace and rest on planet Earth. Yes, ma'am. I have a lot of questions, but I'm going to limit it. First of all, have you heard anything about the toddler? So, he has a stable heartbeat, but he's not breathing on his own. He's on a ventilator, which means he needs a miracle. He needs a miracle. Uh, they haven't run a CAT scan yet to really know, you know, the brain activity. We'll probably do that tomorrow, sometime early this week. So uh, we need to be praying for him and his and his family, mom and dad. As you can imagine this is the nightmare this is for them. So uh, we'll keep you updated. Okay, and I would like to listen to this again. Is the well online? It is online. All right. Yeah. And do you have an outline of things? You know, you talk about the analogies of it happened years ago and then it mirrors. Do you have an outline of those analogies yeah. that's available? Yeah, God's seven sevens. Is that what you're asking for? Any of them. Like Adam is a type of Christ and... All, all of them, a lot. Yeah. Of, I mean, there's a so, lot. Um, I know. You know, when you, you connect the dots, and I, I call Bible study just dot to dots, connecting the dots, learning how to connect the dots, run the lines, and as you do, the picture emerges. So uh, God is very meticulous in all that he does. For anybody here that hasn't been through discipleship too, I strongly encourage you to go through discipleship too. We have at our church something called Discipleship One. And then for those who have been through Discipleship 1, we have something called Discipleship 2. Uh, it meets on Sunday mornings currently. Dustin Rosner, our Discipleship pastor, is teaching it. But we go through a lot of what you heard up there tonight, we go through in Discipleship 2. We, we teach you how to connect those dots. Uh, one of the principles you learn in Bible study is the principle of measured words, meaning there's no wasted space in your Bible, that every word matters. It's called the Word of God for a reason. Not just the thoughts of God or the general ideas of God, but the Word of God, meaning the words specifically matter. And so it is not coincidence at all when 1 Corinthians 15.45 calls Jesus the last Adam because he wants us to associate Jesus with the first Adam. So you have a dot to dot there, okay? First Adam, Genesis 1 through 3. Last Adam, 1 Corinthians 15, 45. Somehow, he's comparing and contrasting Jesus as the last Adam 
with the first Adam. And what we learn is that everything God would have done through the first Adam, he will fulfill completely through the last Adam. I said tonight, what's amazing is God's plan is completely intact. What sin has delayed, it has not denied. God's going to have this kingdom. God told Adam, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. For what reason? To establish a kingdom of image bearers, people that would bear the image of God, worship the living God, establishing then the kingdom of God. Adam sinned. He lost the perfect image of God. He died spiritually. He could no longer reproduce the image of God in his offspring, Genesis 5 and verse 3. Adam begat a son, Seth, in his own image, in his own likeness. So from Adam to Jesus, no one could ever begin to be called a child of God because no one had the perfect image of God, which is why Jesus said, Marvel not, I say unto you, you must be born again. And when you're born again by faith in him, check it out. It says 1 Peter 1, 23, being born again, how? Not of corrupted seed, but of incorruptible seed by the word of God that lives and abides forever. You are born again of that perfect seed of Genesis 3, 15. I'm talking about the seed of our King Jesus. And now that you're born again of his seed, no longer just born of Adam's seed, you get back what Adam lost, which is that image as a child of God, you're born spiritually. Now you're a triune being. Now, check this out. Just as Adam was to establish that kingdom as he took his seed into the intimacy of his bride Eve, the last Adam is doing exactly the same thing. The last Adam also has a bride to establish that kingdom, and that bride is you and I, the church. We've been given the Great Commission. The Great Commission, what we talk about this month, every year, our Global Outreach Month. Do you understand the Great Commission is the very same commission God gave Adam to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth to establish a kingdom of image bearers? We call it evangelism. That's being fruitful. Discipleship. That's called being multiplying and filling the earth. That's what we call world missions. So as we are fruitful and multiplying and filling earth, as we give ourselves to evangelism, discipleship, and world missions, we now, as the bride of Christ, are reproducing the image of God and advancing the kingdom of God on the earth. And so it's just amazing to see how meticulous God is in all that he does. So I got off on all of that to say, if you haven't been through D2, Man, that would be a great next step because you're going to learn the 21 keys of Bible study. You're going to learn how to connect those dots. You're going to learn specifically at one place, the, the seven sevens I talked about, this pattern that God sets up in the Old Testament to establish his plan for the ages. And uh, so if you, want, like, if you want more specifically, email me this week. I'll send you what I got. But... Um, you know, it's a process, guys. Learning is a process. It's just, uh, you know, building on a foundation of, of knowledge, and then God builds on that foundation a little more, and He takes you and, and, and does a little more. And so sometimes uh, it's really hard to assimilate everything you hear until you're in a systematic uh, process of learning line upon line. Uh, so uh, D2 would be a great place to to maybe go, because, um, you know, questions are awesome. That's how you learn. So, 
That's why we're here. That's why we do the well. Bring it on. Sure. So, in the eyes of God, there's only one church, um, but there are unfortunately many traditions of men. So in 2,000 years, uh, the church has been divided and subdivided and redivided for various reasons, sometimes over doctrine, sometimes uh, over geography. Uh, and so... Uh, uh, you know, in the eyes of God, there's only one church, and there's only one type of Christian, a born-again Christian. There's uh, multiple denominations, but there's only one kind of Christian. And so I would tell him, uh, as, uh, as, as an atheist, uh, the biggest question he has to answer is, who is Jesus, and bring him back to the resurrection, so in the end, what is our faith built on? This is what I do when I'm talking to any skeptic, any antagonist of the faith. They'll always want to get you off on, on some peripheral issue. I mentioned slavery. Well, your God's a pro-slavery God. All right. All right. Or, uh, you know, I remember years ago debating creation versus evolution. Here's the reality, guys. Listen, nobody ever died and went to hell instead of heaven because of their belief in evolution. You understand that? Uh, they'll want to debate you on nuances of the Bible. Well, prove to me that Jonah was really swallowed and spent three days and three nights in the belly of a whale. See, those are the wrong conversations to have. Our faith is not built on whether or not Jonah spent three days and three nights in the belly of the whale, though I believe he was, because Jesus said he was, right? Our faith isn't built on creation versus evolution. Our faith is founded on one thing, according to 1 Corinthians 15, the resurrection. And guess what? We can prove the resurrection. We can't prove that Jonah was swallowed by a whale and lived to tell about it. We can't prove what we believe to be about creation. I mentioned, I kind of imply it up here in this lesson, I think Christians lose a lot of credibility arguing about things that we can't prove and we honestly don't know. Well, the earth is 6,000 years old. We don't know that. Let's not lose credibility over things in the end that really don't matter. Nobody died and went to hell because they didn't believe in a 6,000-year-old earth. Now, if you believe as I do, and I've talked about it in this place, in this space over the you know, past couple of years, I'm convinced there's a space in time between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2, that Lucifer rebelled between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2, and there's a reason why Genesis 1-2 opens up, and it says, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness is on the face of the deep. Wait a minute, God is light. If sin and Satan don't yet exist, then why is there darkness? That's another lesson for another time. My point is this. I personally don't believe the earth was created at the same time as Adam. Now, if you're a traditional, conservative, evangelical Christian, you were taught, as I was, that the earth and Adam were created in the same week at the same time. That makes the earth 6,000 years old. All right? I don't believe that. I think the earth is a lot older than most Christians believe and a lot younger than most atheists believe. The honest answer is, I don't know how old the earth is. And you know what? It doesn't matter how old the earth is. 
The test of orthodoxy is not how old the earth is, it's how the earth got here, not how long it's been here. Either God did or God didn't. So the real issue is not how old the earth is, and it's not why are there's all these different denominations and so many different church affiliations, and it, it really isn't where did Cain get his wife, or the Bible's a pro-slavery book, it's none of that. Always bring it back to the one thing that Paul said is the foundation of our faith, and it's the resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15. You know why that's the foundation of our faith? Because if the Bible were true, but Jesus was dead, we'd all still be in trouble tonight eternally. Do you know why Paul said the resurrection is the foundation of our faith? Because if Jonah got swallowed by the belly of a whale and lived to tell about it, but Jesus was still dead, we would all still be in trouble eternally. You see, the foundation of our faith is the resurrection. It's not even proving to somebody all 66 of the books of the Bible is true. Now, I'm convinced all 66 books of the Bible is true, but do you understand that is not even the right argument tonight? Uh, as Christians, yeah, our faith is based on the Bible. It is. But listen carefully. Nobody ever died and went to hell because they didn't believe all 66 books of the Bible is true. See, people die and go to hell because they don't believe the resurrection is true. And here's the issue. We can prove the resurrection the same way you prove anything historically. When you weren't there to see it and you didn't witness it, we can prove the resurrection in the same way you prove anything in history. That's my challenge to atheists and other skeptics and antagonists. Do the research for yourself because here's what I know is true. If they will fully embrace and believe in the resurrection, all the other stuff they brought up and all the other questions, guess what happens? They just don't really matter. I uh, don't really care if Jonah got swallowed by a belly of a whale and lived to tell about it, because I know Jesus was dead, but now he's not. See, all of a sudden, I don't really care how old the age of the earth is. I once did, and now I don't, because you know what? Jesus died, but now he's alive. Um... And in the end, why do I believe Jonah got swallowed by a whale and lived to tell about it? Because Jesus said so. I can't prove it historically. But I know somebody who believed it, and he died on a cross and rose from the dead and is alive today. I think I can believe him. See what I'm saying? Nancy. That all debts are put on hold. Then could you uh, say? Okay. Wait a minute. Stop. Time out. So the sabbatical year debts were dealt with differently than the year of jubilee. Right. The sabbatical year they were temporarily suspended for one year. Year of jubilee they were permanently erased. Okay. So, so in Revelations for the thousand years. Okay. The debt of man that to Christ. Okay, on the thousand years when Christ is reigning in peace, and it says that the rest of the dead did not live again, you know, until the end of the thousand years, then their debt is basically on hold, okay? And now uh, at the end, when the thousand years have expired, then Satan will be released from prison. So would you say then that those thousand years are a sabbatical? 
or a sabbatical and jubilee mixed together? Or how would you describe those thousand years? So a thousand years represents the seventh day, which is a sabbatical rest. So it's a thousand years of rest. It's a thousand years of peace. Revelation 20 says that Satan is bound in the bottomless pit for a thousand years so he can longer deceive the nations. And so uh, what happens at the end of a thousand years? He's loose from that bottomless pit. He's allowed to go forth, once again deceiving the nations. It tells us in the, the wheat and the tares are separated. This was the parable of the wheat and the tares. It was a kingdom parable Jesus taught, sometimes taught in the church age. The context is not the church age, though there's wheat and tares today. True believers, counterfeit believers. They look the same. They're not the same. And what Jesus was teaching in the parable of the wheat and the tares at the end of a thousand years, the wheat and the tares have been allowed for a thousand years to grow up together. They look like they're all following Jesus as the king, but they're not all following Jesus. The counterfeit king is released to separate the tares, the weeds, from the wheat. And so consequently, it proves the depravity of man that even while Jesus is here physically and literally for a thousand years, the rebellious, sinful heart of men will still follow Satan when given an opportunity. So for the believer, it's the year of Jubilee where all debts are released permanently. But think about it. For the unbeliever, it's not Jubilee. For the unbeliever, it's judgment. And so the thousand years represents both the sabbatical rest and the year of Jubilee, completely canceled of our debts. But for the unbeliever, those debts aren't canceled, and God is going to use Satan one more time to expose the hearts of the unbeliever. For a thousand years, there's going to be people who appear to follow Jesus. You know why? Because he's going to rule for a thousand years with a rod of iron. You know what that means? It's going to be a theocracy, not a democracy. All right, Jesus is going to say whatever he wants on whatever day, and everybody's going to follow the king, or the rod of iron is coming down. You better believe people are going to give it the program. But some because they have to, not because they want to. And so Satan is released for a little season at the end of a thousand years to separate the wheat from the tares. End of Revelation 20, they surround the holy city. One last time, the same insurrection that I mentioned began in between Genesis 1, 1, and 1, 2. It's a battle for a kingdom. It's a battle for a throne. It's the war for the world. Who's going to be in control? The counterfeit king known as Satan or the true and rightful resurrected king Jesus. They surround the holy city and almost, if you read the text, completely unclimactic. God nukes them. It's over. Time ends, eternity begins. Yeah, see, it's a thousand-year kingdom, but when a thousand years is over, it ain't over. It's just beginning. Very next chapter opens up with the new heavens and a new earth. For the first heavens and the first earth have passed away. Peter tells us, going to be destroyed in the elements melted away with fire. God's going to incinerate all that is that's been soiled and stained by sin. New heaven, new earth. For all of eternity, time ends. But when time ends, it's not over. Eternity lasts forever. Denise. Uh, Martin. One more and then I got to be done. Got a meeting over in the main building at 6.
Martin's uh, trying, two trying things. To Number one, what are we going to study next year? Say now, what now? What are we going to study next year when this is done? Don't know yet. Acts or Romans been dying. I don't know what for. we're going to do. Um, and going off of the thousand year after the thousand years, Satan being released, separating the wheat from the tares. How did the tares get there? And what I'm getting at is during the rapture, is it only true believers are raptured, but the tares got there because at the end of the... Okay. So let's answer that. Let me, let me take um, 60 seconds to answer that. What are we going to do next year? I'm not sure yet, but you know what we might do um, for the well? Maybe not like an every week thing, but I think consistently have a Q&A. Just have a, a Q&A. And just promote ahead of time to our church. Uh, ask anything you want. Not that I have all the answers or, you know, no member of our staff does, but, um, but just, you know, there's a lot of people with questions. You're not alone. And this is how you learn. So where do the tares come from? So at the end of the tribulation, those that endure till the end, Jesus said in Matthew 24, those that are alive, that haven't died, that haven't been martyred, of the true believers... They go into the kingdom. It will be their seed that replenishes the earth for a thousand years. Remember, at the end of the tribulation, humanity and the number of people on the earth has been significantly diminished. Who knows? I don't know. I'm just throwing this out there. The Bible doesn't say there might be 100,000 people total alive still. Uh, and God separates, he calls it the Matthew 25, the judgment of the sheep and the goats. All right? There's going to be unbelievers alive when he comes, and there's going to be believers alive when he comes. He separates the sheep and the goats. Goats go to hell for a thousand years till they are resurrected to stand at the great white throne judgment. The believers, the sheep, go into the millennial kingdom. They replenish the nations. And so for a thousand years, they're having babies, and those babies are having babies, and those babies are having babies, and those babies are having babies, and we know the curse of sin will be reversed, not completely, but it's gradually being lifted. Isaiah 65 says that if one dies at a hundred years of age, it's going to be like an infant has died. So the implication being the long lives that you read about in the book of Genesis before the flood, they are returning because the curse of sin is reversing. So you have people on the earth living to be hundreds of years old, and their, their kids are living to be hundreds of years old. So what is happening? Uh, their children, their grandchildren, their great-grandchildren, some of them are coming to true faith in Jesus as the Messiah. Some of them are only acting like it. They're the tares. Not the ones initially that go into the millennial kingdom, because they survived the tribulation as true followers of Jesus, but their descendants who are born in the millennial kingdom, some of them will follow Jesus, truly being born again. Some of them will only act like it. They are the counterfeits. They are the tares. And they are the ones that Satan separates out at the end of the millennial kingdom to make war with the Lamb. But of course, they lose. Just remember, in the end, we win. You're on the winning side. You're on the side of God. Love you a whole bunch. Let's pray together, okay? Jesus, I pray that you bless every person here in a very special way. The Lord, you'd prepare our hearts to see the King, that you'd prepare us, Lord, even now for that kingdom. And even now, Lord, that we would walk out Revelation 5.10 and Revelation 1 and verse 6, that we are even now priests 
and kings in your kingdom, serving a high king, the high king of heaven, and the high priest over all those who believe, and that one day we will inherit the earth that you'd originally given Adam before the fall, and paradise lost will be paradise regained. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.